When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This would normally be the time of the program as you hit play when you would hear an ad from CBUS. And that's not the case because as we explained uh, on Storytime last week, our wonderful two-year association with CBUS Super has come to an end and we thank them for their magnificent contribution to what we do here on The Final Word. But what it does mean, Jeff, is that we have some terrain on the show and it could be yours. Uh, Lots of different parts of The Final Word on both the weekly show and the weekend show. We've been doing really well over the last 12 to 24 months and we'd love to partner with you if you want to hang out with us. This spot right here on the weekly show will have a tenant in the next couple of weeks, but there are a bunch of other opportunities available on Storytime on the weekends, on the YouTube channel, uh, on all kinds of different ways, depending how creative you want to get. Uh, what you can get if you work with us is a show that's had over 2 million downloads in the last two years, a show that cracked a million views on YouTube inside the first three months that we were posting anything on the channel, and a couple of hosts who've got a reach of about 60,000 people on Twitter before we get onto other social platforms. And I guess most fundamentally, we don't tend to promote things unless we think they could actually be useful to people. So we don't sell diet pills <laughs> and we don't do what one weird trick that made this mentone grandma suddenly look 30 years old. We don't do sports betting. We try to do things that we actually think could be worth Yeah, it. and in terms of the trajectory of that, two million downloads in two years, but the second million came in about eight months or something like that. So we're trending in the right direction. We'll be doing plenty more on YouTube through the course of 2021 as well, which is really exciting into a different market that we haven't reached before. So this is the time. If you want to be involved with The Final Word, drop us a line at finalwordcricket at gmail.com. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon for another week. And it will be another big week on the show for there is so much going on around the cricketing world. We have Dan Bredig joining us to talk all things Jollymont. There is a new sheriff in town at Cricket Australia. Well, not really. It's the the interim boss has become (laughs) the full-time boss. But uh, a lot of uh, the the politics of Cricket Australia, shall we say, uh, has been at the fore over the last seven days. (laughs) How many Westerns can you imagine where the bloke rocks into the saloon and goes, I'm the interim <laughs> sheriff in these parts. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> oh, that'll strike fear into their hearts. You don't want to mess with the interim sheriff. Ooh. Well, they would have been wrong to have messed with the interim sheriff, for the interim sheriff mm-hmm. is now the full-time czar. Mm-hmm. So th- that'll be Dan Bredding's. The sheriff became a czar. That is a big promotion. You know, I'm just going with it. I'm just rolling with it. The Australian <laughs> players are home uh, from the IPL. They're out of quarantine. We're going to have nerd pledges always. Plenty going on in the world of Afghanistan cricket, which, Chef, you've t- been taking an interest in. Uh, we have a test match at Lord 
awards this week between England and New Zealand, a fantastic round in the county championship. But first and foremost, I should say, welcome to you properly, Jeff. And in the usual way, I, I want to see what, mm-hmm. what you've got in the fridge. I, I, I've got a feeling you've got <laughs> something special. It is time for a little bit of the milk round. I like to drink the milk all day long. That's why I'm writing this drinking milk song. Milk is good for me and for you. And you know you want to drink some too. Unless you are a lactose intolerant, then you can't have any tolerance. I love milk. It's good for you. And you know you want to drink it too. Milk now, Adam, I've kept this milk, from you milk. because I knew that you would be very excited, but I'm just holding up to the, the webcam for the first time something that you will be oh, extremely interested what? in. Big M have only gone and brought back the Blue oh. Heaven. You can see this on the screen now. Now, this is a flavour which I've learned is very uniquely Australian. No one knows what Blue Heaven tastes like outside Australia. We don't really know what it tastes like in Australia either, but I think from my research it's supposed to be something like vanilla with a hint of raspberry, but it's coloured blue for reasons unknown to me. But there became a real blue raspberry trend for a long time amongst lollies and drinks, which I think kicked off with the Blue Heaven. But nothing feels better than ordering a Blue Heaven milkshake, does it? You know, you just feel like it's blue, it's heavenly. This is where I want to be. As, as our dear friend and former producer uh, on uh, Wisdom Test Cricket in, in the UAE, Andrew Donison, uh, once said when creating a drink called the Soviet Ice Bomb, when it turned blue, my heart grew. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about uh, the Blue Heaven as well. I'm always copying shit from Rach about when talking about ice creams or flavours. She says that I'm such a child for when I'm asked what my favourite flavour is, I just simply say blue or rainbow. <laughs> She's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I, uh, so, okay. that, that's uh, I'm, I'm quite jealous looking through the screen. It's as good as the memories. It's as good as the memories. My only quibble, Big M, is why does this say limited edition? <laughs> why would you make that a limited edition? Just put it on the shelves year round. It's like hot cross buns. People want it's like, it's people like the, want uh, blue the, heaven all the, year the round. Caramel that, that, that Cadbury mm. had for like a couple of years, twenty years ago, and they brought it back as a limited edition. And people were hoarding it mm-hmm. on the basis that they they sort of linked it back yeah. to simpler times. The same applies to the Big mm-hmm. M range, I think. So. Look, we, we haven't. Um, we've been talking about trying to work with Oak, who've been not responding to our emails. You heard us talk off the top about looking for new dance partners. Well, Oak aren't coming. Oak aren't coming to the dance with us yet. If you're listening, Big M, mm-hmm. you can be part of this as well. <laughs> <laughs> Only if it's full time. That's our quick condition. You've got to have Big M Blue Heaven full time year round. All right. Well, Jeff, you enjoy that through the show. Uh, what we might do first is go to a man who's been on the show many times before, Daniel Bredig, to talk about what's going on at Cricket Australia and also about his new job. It's final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And with us to have a chat this morning is a man who actually isn't working at the moment because he's got himself a new job. Normally, I would introduce Dan Bredig, friend of the show, as the Australian editor of ESPN Crick Info. But now I can say uh, he's the soon-to-be chief cricket correspondent for the Age newspaper in Melbourne. Dan, congratulations on the new job. It's a big change and an exciting one too. Thanks very much, Colo, and good to see you as well, Jeff. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it took... A lot of thought because Crick Info have been uh, great for me and there's really nowhere else like it in the world to work for and so I had to give it pretty careful consideration but I think ultimately I made the decision based on the fact that 
I'm going to be working like I've I've got a sports editor who's literally the previous chief cricket writer at the Age in Chloe Salto. So I've got I'm going to be working with people who know the game particularly well. And yeah, it's yeah there's a there's a terrific tradition of um, of cricket writing at the at the Age. Go back to people like Peter McFarlane. Mike Cowd was there for a while. Mark Ray at the Sunday Age. I think made a lot of changes to the way that we write about cricket um, in Australia and. Um, yeah, and obviously Chloe. So, uh, yeah, very um, gratified that they uh, that they wanted me on board. Yeah, exciting. You'll be able to slip into that great tradition at that fantastic newspaper. And you're doing so, I mean, not at the same paper, but Malcon uh, has gone uh, back into journalism. He, was, of course, was, was at Cricket Australia latterly and uh, before that at a range of papers. But now uh, you're... Uh, what would you call him? Your your uh, your your other hand at Sydney. He's the chief cricket correspondent of the Sydney Morning Herald, and of course under the same banner at Nine Media. So, and I suppose the timing is great for the two of you to get these opportunities when there's a lot going on at Cricket Australia, uh, which we are going to talk about today. In the case of Mal, who's already started, he's arrived with a bang, uh, as we expected, uh, writing a, a very punchy column uh, over the weekend where he got stuck in fairly heavily to the existing administration at Jollymont, including the chair, Earl Eddings, saying that he needed to go. Uh, what was your impression as to where that came from? Not literally who briefed the story, but like, you know, where's that coming from, from Mal and from the parts of the cricket community who want to see change? There's absolutely a, a strong sense. Um, it's not everywhere, but it is, it's certainly got, um, got a decent amount of legs that, Cricket Australia does need some fresh leadership and that the organisation has been in a reactive posture basically for three years, starting with Newlands. And even the fact that, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, Newlands itself wasn't happening in a vacuum. Newlands was happening when they were doing a TV deal. So, uh, you know, the fact that even the way that Newlands played out was a reaction to the fact that, you know, the biggest money deal that Cricket Australia ever does every sort of five years was, was at the pointy end. And, you know, since then... They've had, they've had that. They've had culture review. They've had managing the summer. They've had return of Smith and Warner to the team and Ashes. They had 2019-20 was, was a little bit of, like, normality briefly, I suppose you'd say. I can't imagine Kevin Roberts thought that he was going to be out of a job within six months during that summer. But then after that, obviously, COVID hit and the management of COVID uh, by Cricket Australia has been called into question in just about every quarter. So I think the biggest thing that came through in in Mal's piece I think is that um, while Kevin Roberts moved on middle of last year there's still some board accountability there that probably hasn't been fully examined. Dan where does Cricket New South Wales sit in this because you know they're they're the board with the most clout with the the heaviest fists to swing they were the keyboard in getting rid of the previous chair, David Peaver, the keyboard in getting rid of the previous CEO, Kevin Roberts. They're the board that's been agitating against Earl Eddings, but he hasn't been willing to to take that as the cue to go as, as some of the previous uh, staff did. And Malcolm Conn was working there previously um, before coming back into journalism. And so you would imagine there was some level of information coming from Cricket New South Wales to uh, to him to write the piece that he did. Like, What's their place in this? Are they the, the kingmakers or is, is their power more limited? Like, What part do you think they're playing? I think one thing that is absolutely beyond doubt, and it was really interesting to, to think about this through the prism of Nick Hockley being appointed permanent CEO of Cricket Australia, there is a view in cricket or has been a view in cricket pretty much ever since Cricket Australia had a chief executive when it was the ACB in the early 80s that 
because that person has been based in Melbourne, the attitude of the board is too Melbourne-centric. And I think what you're seeing right now with those instances, Jeff, that you rightly um, call up in terms of, you know, pressure on the board, pressure on the CEO, things like that, I think a lot of that is kind of symptomatic of that underlying attitude. It's that the, the um, you know, the biggest cricket stadium is New South Wales, the, the biggest provider of, of talent to the national teams is New South Wales, the sort of wellspring of a lot of the, um, I suppose you'd say, more aggressive ideas in Australian cricket, whether you're thinking captaincy, whether you're thinking administration, even things like the, um, the fact that the New South Wales breakers were paid professionally before any other cricket team, women's cricket team in Australia was in New South Wales. That attitude is, you know, that's pretty deeply held within that state. And so there is definitely an underlying view there that, well, we are the centre of cricket in, in Australia. Why don't we always hold that, hold that power at a, at a board, administrative or, um, or strategic level? And the fact that Nick Hockley has been uh, appointed this week that Jeff uh, mentioned a moment ago, uh, the timing felt uh, curious to me that there's been a lot of focus on on the inner workings of Cricket Australia in recent times and he was always going to be, well, he was always known as the interim chief executive. They were careful to note that there was going to be a process gone through. Uh, In the end, uh, he's received the job in the week where there seems to be the most attention on what's going on there per that piece we were discussing a moment ago. Is there any link between the two or potentially any link to that, to that power structure at New South Wales that you're referring to? Well, I think, I think it was, it was certainly the case that while Cricket New South Wales obviously they weren't great fans of Kevin Roberts and, and certainly weren't great fans of David Peaver as the, as the previous chair of Cricket Australia. The collective view, I suppose, and this wasn't just in New South Wales, is obviously Nick was appointed initially in an interim capacity and that there would be a search. The talk is always about a global search for, uh, for the CEO. <laughs> and, you know, there may certainly have been approaches made and interviews done with candidates from outside of Cricket Australia or outside of Australia even... The fact remains that in the entire history of there being a CEO at the ACB slash Cricket Australia, there's only ever been one external appointment, and that was Malcolm Speed to replace Graham Halbish in 97. It tends to be a role that is chosen from within, and that is, again, I think... It does become a, it, it does become a, a bit of a tension point between CA and Cricket New South Wales in terms of of their thinking. I mean, if, if you think about New South Wales, obviously they, they went beyond their borders or beyond their shores even in that they went for Lee Jamon as, as CEO. And also that, uh, yeah, again, it's it's probably, it's certainly a good thing or it has seeming seemed to be a good thing in, a, in certainly in the last COVID summer that Nick Hockley was based in Sydney, not based in Melbourne, while uh, he was he was interim CEO. And I think one of the most fascinating elements of how he chooses to go forward is how much time he spends in each respective city. Of course, you've got the new CEO of the ACA, Todd Greenberg, based in Sydney. You've got a couple of pretty key board directors now of Cricket Australia in Richard uh, Frodenstein and Mike Baird, both based in New South Wales. And so there's a case to be made there for the this CEO spending more time in Sydney than any before him. And then when it comes to that appointment, it it has been interesting over the last uh, almost a year having to constantly refer to an interim CEO. I I could understand that it made some sense uh, given the appointment came in the middle of 
the pandemic flaring up for the first time, that maybe it made sense to let that run until the end of the Australian summer, pretty much so that if anything went really wrong, then the interim CEO could carry the can for it and they could get someone else in fresh who didn't have to make the same unpopular or difficult decisions if there were massive problems. But having got to the end of that successful home summer, why did it take so long to actually just make the appointment? Why did it take almost a year to look allegedly for another CEO and then appoint the guy who was already there just as they did when searching the world for the next CEO before they got Kevin Roberts from the next door down the hall? All we are ever told is that it needs to be process-driven and correct governance, Jeff. That, that tends to be the, the way. I think that one of the unfortunate things that has um, reared a few times for Cricket Australia in the last sort of 12 to 18 months, maybe even over that three-year period I mentioned before, just occasionally it seems like a struggle to do more than one thing at once. And in the case of of the CEO, I think the reason, the most reasonable outcome would have been to, you know, essentially the minute that the kind of, I guess you'd say the revenue-raising part of the summer concluded with the end of the Big Batch League, that the CEO process would have been ratcheted up, you know, the following week and that we would have had an outcome maybe a couple of months prior to, to, to now. That being said... There's, I suppose you'd, you'd say, um, the level of uncertainty around Cricket Australia that took place during the during the summer regarding COVID and all, all of that kind of thing, that also created a bit of a sense of exhaustion and need for a break of some kind, a mental one, if not one where people could actually travel away on holidays. I think what we've seen after the Big Bash and and as well after the domestic season, something a little bit more akin to what you'd see at the end of an AFL season where, you know, all of the presidents, CEOs, executives go on a break and then you don't necessarily hear from that level of football for a little while. You just tend to hear from the list managers and the recruiting teams and the the footy departments who do stay on to make sure they get through to the draft and trade and then they take their break. So I think there was an element of that to, uh, to the delay, but there's no question that by the time that Nick was announced as the permanent CEO, people within and outside of the cricket industry had had been crying out for a decision to be made for a number of weeks. So Hockley's well-credentialed on the basis of what he's been able to achieve so far in the role, uh, what he did before at the World Cup, uh, what he did at the London Olympics back in 2012, uh, experience in other sports. So he ticks a lot of boxes, but I'm I'm curious as to what you think he'll be like to get the crystal ball out a little bit here. But... We know with James Sutherland, he wasn't especially polished when communicating, but he was very effective behind the scenes, per what you've written about him for a number of years, probably over a decade, you've been chronicling the career of James Sutherland. Then Kevin Roberts was incredibly polished, but you know the, the reports from inside were that he left a bit to be desired on substance, and Hockley seems to fit more in the first tradition. He gets tied up in knots on radio interviews and TV, and of course, that's that's the prism in which we interpret these leaders, isn't it? Because we work in the media. But from the people you're talking to, uh, is, is there a sense that behind closed doors he's a, he's a fairly formidable customer or is, that, or is the jury still out on that point? Oh, there's no doubt that the kind of diffident, bashful, occasionally stumbling over words thing that we see from Nick Hockley in, in media interviews, that is in part that he lacks polish, but I think it is also in part a little bit of a persona of being friendly or trying to 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 be as friendly as he as he can in a in a public facing environment i don't think he's always that way behind the scenes i don't think he's uh 
always that indirect. I don't think it would be possible to have risen as he has or to have coped with the last 12 months as he has without the ability to be direct and to and to be decisive at times. You know, one of the things that I'd say about Hockley, very much to his credit, is that he basically got given a hospital pass in terms of this role and he held it in an interim capacity for, you know, to within about six months of Kevin Roberts' entire tenure. So that's a credit to his resilience and work rate, I suppose, apart from anything else. But the biggest question about, about Nick Hockley is... Is he going to, as the permanent CEO, going to be able to transcend, I suppose, the, um, the big event management background that he has, that he can look at the whole of Australian cricket and world cricket, indeed, given you know, the, the clout that Cricket Australia has at the ICC, to chart a vision for the game in collaboration with his board? And uh, that's something that no one can really answer until until they see him in action over the next uh, six to 12 months. And, you know, that's got to be the biggest question mark over how he, is, how he is to go. Can he, I suppose, move through the gears from concentrating on building up to a big event, hosting the event, having an exhale and moving on to the next one, to a more rolling, roaming commission, which is that, uh, you know, but the, I think the line that James Sutherland uh, tended to use was of cricket being an issues-rich environment, and that's what Nick has now got. And what do you make of him, of what he's done so far? Because most of the the angst and the conflict, as summarised in that Malcolm Conn piece, really dates back to the Kevin Roberts tenure, where it's about the worry that CA's administration brought in to the discussion at the time that their sort of doomsday predictions about how bad things would get and how much money would need to be cut and the fact that that was nowhere near what actually what it transpired to be. Hockley's not really attached to that because he came into the job after all of those um, projections had been made. So what do you make of what he has been able to do in a, in a positive sense in the time that he's been there? Well, you certainly don't hear uh, the complaints about having to deal with him or being unable to deal with him that you did when uh, Kevin Roberts was the CEO. That has stopped. Now, the degree to which that has stopped because everyone realised, okay, we've had a change in CEO, we need to get on with the season, I'm sure that there was an element of that. But, uh, yeah, the the test of whether those grumblings were paused or stopped, I suppose, is the distinction you'd, you'd draw. Again, that's something that we find out over the over the next six to 12 months. And... And, you know, and a lot of that is in context of, of other big things that are, that are coming up for Cricket Australia. I know the obvious ones, of course, are what happens with the captaincy, what happens with Justin Langer as the coach, what happens even in the context of how Nick, as the CEO, navigates the uncertainty about the board and about whether Earl Eddings has another term as chair. Those are always, you know, very difficult issues for a CEO in terms of, you know, where exactly he can stand when the board are trying to figure that sort of stuff out. So those are all there. And the other thing that is even bigger than those is that Cricket Australia are now into reviewing their strategy and reviewing what they want cricket to look like for the next five years after their current one, you know, their current strategy that that took in the years, including the culture review and Newlands and all those sort of things, which obviously poked a few holes in the strategy. Yeah, what they want that to look like. And that includes things like, what do they do next with the Big Bash? What are their priorities going to be for the next broadcast deal? What are their priorities going to be for the next uh, collective bargaining agreement with the ACA? 
Dan, to put you on the spot to finish, Earl Eddings, uh, does he hang on uh, as chair and get a chance to serve uh, for another term or does he get replaced? And if it were to be the latter, is there a chance that Mike Baird could end up the chair of Cricket Australia? I mean, I can't believe I'm even saying that, but do you think there's a possibility that he might go from where he's been in public life to the chair of Cricket Australia? I don't think there's anyone who has been a state premier who then goes on to the board of a sporting administrative body does so without wanting at least somewhere within their being to be the leader. So I think that the question of whether he seriously puts himself up for it is a matter of time in terms of how long he needs to get his feet under the desk and understand the issues, but also a matter of time in terms of how much time is he willing to commit to being the chair of Cricket Australia because it is extremely time and labour and in non-COVID times travel intensive a job. Back to Earl Eddings, I think the only way that he does survive in terms of you know what will be an kind of an escalating political fight among states and, and at CA in terms of his tenure is he's going to have to provide a clear reason why and also a an exit strategy a look I'm going to stay for this long for this reason and you know the, these are, these are the reasons why and, and this is this is who I'm going to be handing it over to I think continuing to be on the board, given that he's been on the board since 2008, and continuing to remain as chair, without giving those clear indications, that would be symptomatic of the problem that Mal Khan wrote about, which is the perceived lack of leadership, the perceived lack of direction. So the only other thing I'd say that that adds or kind of adds complexity to the case a little bit is that since 2018 in New Orleans, there's only three directors left on the board, so they've already had a lot of a lot of turnover relative to uh, to pretty much any board. So, one of the things that if you you know go back through the deep dark mists of of hi- the history of Cricket Australia, something that has happened in the past is that a chair, once the chair has resigned as chair, they stay on the board. Now, the instrument that the states have at the moment is to remove a director, so there's no rather than any question of chairman. So that would be either Earl is there as chair or he's not there at all. The other option, if you're talking about continuity and you're talking about maintaining a, a certain level of intellectual property apart from anything else and knowledge of, of things at international level as well as in Australia, is a chair stepping down but remaining on the board and being there as a, as a senior advisor. Leave you that that one. Yes, fascinating times uh, at Jolly One. As always, uh, Dan, thanks for uh, your insight. Congratulations on the new job. Can't wait to see what you can do there over at the age. And thanks as always for being a dependable correspondent of ours on the final word. Not a problem, guys. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to the final word. Thanks to Dan Bredig. Looking forward to the work he will do at The Age. Uh, Jeff, uh, we didn't really go into the IPL element of this, but there's been a bit of movement this week as far as the schedule for the competition. 14 days ago, let's say, it was all about trying to get the IPL to England and maybe requiring Mm -hmm. a reshuffle of the test matches. There was a chance that the Old Trafford test, fifth in the schedule against Mm -hmm. India, might have got moved to the front, Mm -hmm. and which would have meant the gap for the Indian players would have been shorter after the World Test Championship final. But that got... You know, vetoed essentially by the by the ECB. The, the suggestion was there was never a formal pitch made by the BCCI, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. that was knocked on the head. In turn, the BCCI have done what we expected them to do and scheduled it to be yep. in the UAE, which means that now we have a whole different conversation about how the players might be available, when they might mm-hmm. be available, and it looks, Jeff, as though mm-hmm. the Australians simply won't be. 
Well, there was there was never a formal request either to change the uh, the India England Test series to accommodate the IPL or to get rid of the fifth Test at Old Trafford to accommodate that. But there were informal requests, <laughs> and I'd be very curious to know. I, I think um, King Cricket was writing about this as well during the week. The the distinction between formal and informal requests. You know, I I informally requested this hitman <laughs> to kill a man for me, but I did not formally request it, and thus cannot be charged in a court of law. So so look, they've settled on this new window without changing the England series, which leaves them not much time to try to squeeze the thing in. And, yeah, it doesn't look like Australian players will go. England players definitely won't go. But I suppose as long as you get your 30-odd matches on and get them on TV, satisfy the contracts, then that's all that needs to be done. It doesn't really matter who's playing in the end. We saw the Australian players leave hotel quarantine in Sydney yesterday, having, of course, been chartered from India via the Maldives and then through mm. to Sydney. Some lovely shots, especially of Pat Cummins and his fiance, his pregnant fiance, embracing at the front of the hotel. It must have been so tough for them, especially. But yeah, all the players having gone through a lot over the last month or so, they're now back in the community. Unfortunately for some of them, they'll be back to Melbourne and, and back to lockdown in the case of Glenn Maxwell. But at least they've, uh, they've reached that next threshold of, of exiting hotel mm. quarantine. Yeah, welcome home. Yeah. Uh, you can't go out. Uh, it, it's... It's a huge amount of time when you think about it that it's... It, Getting being in a form of lockdown to get into the IPL bubble in the first place, being inside it for a few weeks, then having to spend the best part of a couple of weeks in the Maldives waiting to come home, and then on coming home, you're in hotel queue for two more weeks. They must have just been tearing their hair out by the end of it, and it's no surprise that a couple of the more prominent players in Dave Warner and Pat Cummins have already said that they don't want to go to the West Indies. They're supposed mm. to be on that trip, which would mean heading to Brisbane in two weeks from now. So after spending the best part of a month in staged lockdowns and quarantines on the way to getting back to their own homes, they would have two weeks at home and then be off to Queensland. I mean, presumably if you're coming from Victoria, maybe you have to be isolating again to go to Queensland. And then um, off to the Caribbean where you also have to spend... 14 days in St Lucia, which has a bit more freedom than other places, but basically you're inside a resort or a large hotel of sorts. And I think you can leave your room and wander around and do things within the complex, but you can't leave the complex. So they probably have some arrangement for going to train and so on, but they'd still be in a form of quarantine over there as well before actually being able to get out and play. So it's just a, a vast amount of this kind of stuff that, that the players in that squad will have to keep dealing with if they go ahead on that too. Yeah, I think if the IPL finished the way they expected to, and sure, they would have had to have quarantined in Australia anyway around this time, but I think it was just the, the, the way in which it all came about. It was the detour. It was the sudden way the tournament ended. It's been obviously very taxing on them, having been through a number of bubbles in the Australian summer as well. So it makes sense that there'll be a degree of rest now for, for those players. And look, we've seen it in, in England as well. And look, maybe the England players never would have been available uh, from the IPL, I mean, mm. for this test series against New Zealand, which we'll talk about in a bit of depth later in the show. But yeah. the fact that there's been this unusual and and tragic intervention in India I think has changed the the, uh, the thinking around how they have to manage these players carefully as they transition from that and get ready for the next series. Well also that um, the prognosis for things to be easier within Australia is not great whereas maybe six months ago yeah. players and CA would have been thinking by 
by the sort of latter, you know, by three quarters of the way into this year, we should be pretty right. You know, we might not have much in the way of quarantine coming in. We'll have people vaccinated and all the rest of it. Now it's looking like all through the home summer that will still be a factor. So anytime someone leaves the country, they've potentially got two weeks in isolated quarantine coming back in. A lot of countries they go to will require that sort of quarantine as well inbound. So there's a lot more difficulty ahead than might have been anticipated six months ago. Gee, that dog whistling the government's been doing for the anti-vaxxer vote, fuck me, it's going to have massive repercussions through the community and through cricket as well. Jeff, let's do some nerd pledge, I think, shall we? A little bit. A little bit of nerd pledge. A little bit of nerd pledge. That's a game that we play on this show. It's a reverse quiz style game. We play it with people on our patron page because in order to spend all the time making the show a couple of times a week, we need to get some funding in. And they help that by sending us amounts of currency, very specific amounts, numbers that relate to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what that relationship is. Uh, We're going to do one number today, Jeff, and this will be uh, a feature of the weekly show as we work through. We've decided to just do one featured number on the weekly show, and we'll have everything else on on Mm -hmm. Storytime, which is loads of fun, by the way. I always say this on the weekly show, but if you're not part of our Storytime crew, that is getting better and more detailed and more ridiculous uh, week on week. So be with us there each Saturday morning. Jeff, the number we have to deal with today is a familiar number it's a friendly number mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. an old pair of jeans and nick dempsey <laughs> has sent through 365 and i'm pretty sure you're going to luxuriate in it <laughs> three dollars 65 yeah 365 is familiar i like that you said jeans because in a way 365 is related to brian lara who also made the 501 the levi's 501s <laughs> um, thus that's it. it's a very jeans related number but in terms of the most iconic numbers in cricket, you know, 99.94, and then probably 365 and 375 would have to be very close to that, 365 being yeah. the world record score that Garfield Sobers held, and then 375, what Brian Lara made to break it the first time. Yeah, I think that's right. I reckon if you were going through, maybe this could be a, a, a subtopic for us on a story time at some point. Maybe we should write a mm. book. The best numbers, and I reckon, mm. I reckon 365, yeah, it's on the podium, put it that way. So as far as the Sobers knock, it's remarkable that that's his first 100 in Test cricket. Mm. He's 21 years old when that happens. It's in the same series that Hanif Muhammad made the 337. So two triple tons in the same series in 1958. And the 365 that Sobers made... That record stood for 36 years, just a couple of months short of 36.5 years um, <laughs> when when Brian Lara broke it in 1994. But I think that number's familiar, so maybe that's not where Nick's going. 36.5 did feel like a Shane Robert Watson batting average sort of number. I felt like 36.5 was about where he was in his test career, but he never specifically landed on 36.5. He was, he was 36.56 uh, after the MCG game in 2013 when he made 83 not out in the fourth innings in a run chase. Very underrated innings, mind you. 83 off 90 balls to chase 220-odd and make sure that Australia won that game. But, yeah, 36.56 would be rounded up, not down, so that can't be it. But there are a couple of players who average 36.5 overall in their test career. One of them you might be interested in, Adam, Richard Hutton, the son of Sir Leonard Hutton, um, who only managed five tests. It's the sort of Julian Lennon 
Arjun Tendulkar <laughs> complex. You know, it's <laughs> it's hard to be the son of uh, or, or daughter of someone who is so good, so prominent and so dominant in their field, but did play five test matches, more of a bowler than a batsman, took 750-odd professional wickets, did Richard Hutton, and took nine wickets in tests and made two half centuries, top of 81, could bat a bit, obviously, and did average 36.5. But it's also an interesting pairing, considering who we like on this show. Shahid Afridi from 27 test matches and Shadal Thakur, current final word favourite from his two test matches, currently averaging 36.5. I know you enjoyed Shadal's work at uh, at the Gabba. Very much so. I really hope he gets a chance to play. The fact that they've got so many fast bowlers here, we forget that sort of Shadal Thakur, Mohamed Siraj, they were the replacements, despite having done so mm. well. They will probably slip behind... Ishant Sharma, obviously mm. Jasprit Bumrah, Muhammad Shami back at full fitness. So yeah. it might be the case that Shardul comes here and, and doesn't play, but I hope there's a way they, they can shoo him in because he's um, he's a mm. super bowler. Will Bhuvneshwar come to England no, as well? No, he's not playing the test no. matches. So um, right. I think that the, the, the issue with Bhuvi, despite how well he would do here, it's just that his body doesn't let him play more than mm. sort of one four-day game in a row. So And that's been right. an issue for a couple of years now. So he's become almost, despite what it looks like, He's almost become mm. a white ball specialist. Anyway, not to worry. Return to three six five. If if you could only play one test, it'd be pretty handy f- for that to be the World Test Championship. That's final. true. That's just, true. just saying, a guy who can swing it around corners. Yeah, yeah. Be pretty pretty useful. So Shade Freddy and Shadal Thakur uh, both have had an aggressive intent with the bat. What I really liked uh, looking at Freddy's record though is the test batting strike rate of 86.97 which doesn't sound super high in the T20 era but as far as a test career average it's pretty fucking high in terms of players with higher strike rates across their career there are a handful ahead of him with very unclear stats from the eras when they didn't consistently keep records of balls faced so they're not reliable and then there are a handful of other players with clear stats but the most number of deliveries that any of them faced was 159. So if Freddie faced nearly 2,000 balls across 48 innings, he is clearly far and away the only established player with a strike rate that high across the ridiculous career that he had. I've realised recently that we, we think of stats being quite thorough in the modern era. But if you go on James Anderson's Crick Info page, which I do from time to time, it must be said, he doesn't have a career first-class economy rate. And I think right. a career first-class batting strike rate either because there must have been games towards the start when, for whatever reason, balls yeah. faced weren't kept, which seems crazy now mm. that in the last 20-odd years there were, there were games like that. But yes, Shahid Afridi, there was a clip that went around I think a Rob Linda clip that went around and did the rounds again uh, last week from his final test innings when he was mm. caught in front of the grandstand there at Lords by Mike Hussey yep. off the bowling of uh, Marcus, Marcus North. North. It was mm. an appropriate way for him to fall, trying to pop him onto the moon, uh, pop him up to Abbey Road <laughs> or something like that. But no, the the uh, the, um, the strike rate of eighty six point nine seven. It was mm. such an exciting career when he did get going. I think he made five test hundreds, something like that. Yep, spot on, five test hundreds. And he popped up on um, on the cable TV the other day. They were replaying a bunch of old matches from the mid-90s, old one-day games. And Shahid Afridi, a very young version, was opening the batting and you know doing what he does, made 36 off 20 balls or whatever it was, and, and got himself out. But as far as his test career goes, the, the five tons include him making 103 from 80 balls in Lahore, 122 from 95 in Bridgetown, and 156 from 128 in Faisalabad. And this is part 
part of a streak. Two of those tons are against India, and there's a streak in less than a year where he makes those 300s. He also makes 59 from 59, 58 from 34, and then 60 from 46, all against India within about 10 months, <laughs> including uh, then he makes a 92 from 85 against England. So across seven innings in under a year, he hits 36s. <laughs> along with 68 fours in test cricket in the space of 10 months. It is an absolutely bonkers career that Shade Freddy had, even in that year alone, if you leave out the other 30-odd years of him being ridiculous. Shahid Afridi, what a guy. Thank you, Nick Dempsey, for your 365. And as I mentioned before, there'll be a lot more where that came from on Storytime this weekend. Let's take a break on the final word. When we come back, we'll talk Afghanistan, the county championship and the test match starting at Lords this week. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, it's been a couple of weeks. I've got the urge to talk about the most beautiful piece of satellite technology in the cosmos, including the two black holes. It is the Zolio. Z-O-L-E-O. You put those letters together, you get Zolio. Now, Adam, in 1947, the Norwegian ethnographer Thor Heyerdahl set off from the coast of South America on a raft, uh, hoping to reach Tahiti and thus prove that migration had happened from the South American continent to the Pacific Islands. He made it. Uh, He made it. But in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, had Thor Heyerdahl thought, I'd really like to send a text message to somebody in 1947, he wouldn't have been able to do it. Message in a bottle was the best that you could do at that time. But if you found yourself on a raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean today with your smartphone and your Zolio box, you could use the Zolio to text anyone in the world with a phone number or an email address to send them a written message just from your smartphone. And by the Zolio box, I mean a little, neat little box that fits in the palm of your hand, very lightweight, very durable, very rugged, very well protected and ready for the outdoors that magically turns your phone into a satellite phone. I thought about it a lot this week. I got the train back and forth from Manchester. And as you know, Jeff, good luck getting on the Wi-Fi uh, on those trains. So in order to do any work or to communicate with the outside world, it wasn't going to happen. So I thought to myself, how much easier would life be right now if I had a Zolio in my top pocket or connected to my belt, as is the custom uh, with the Zolio. You can connect it to your belt. And I would have done exactly that, but I'm not in Australia and thus I haven't actually got a Zolio yet and I will when I get back there later in the year. You do though, you've got it in your hand right now. It looks so small, it looks so compact, it's so effective, it's so efficient. It's so neat. Uh, we all, it's so neat. It's just, it's, it's elegant. It's perfect. Check out that belt loop. I'm s- you could just pop that straight on your oh, belt like that. That's it. That nice little loop. You could, that's it. You could put it on your keys. If you had a big set of keys, you could just be a big key ring, big durable key ring. So, you know, as Adam said, you don't have to be in the middle of the Pacific. You could just be maybe halfway between Crewe and Manchester when it's equally impossible to get a message out. You could bang on your Zolio, open up the little app on your phone and you can text whoever you want from anywhere, anytime. Remember that night in, in, in the World Cup when we were coming back from Manchester on that, when we were uh-huh. leaving Pakistan, India, yep. and we had to get back to London mm-hmm. on the last train. I mean, we might have been booked on the penultimate train mm-hmm. and we had to get back because we were doing the Yahoo show the following morning. Mm-hmm. There was no latitude there. Yep. There was no way to make it work unless we returned home that night. Mm-hmm. And our what were we, we were sending something off. Yep. And, of course, the Wi-Fi wasn't working. The 4G wasn't letting mm-hmm. us do it from the train. I had to get off a train, run into a pub, where I just, in the nick of time, got it sent 
via the pub's mm-hmm. free Wi-Fi, sprinted back, got on the next train. Mm-hmm. I think I was in Macclesfield or something like that. Does yep. that ring a bell? And it was a very stressful experience. Mm-hmm. It took years off my life, but I wouldn't have needed to necessarily have worried about that. I could have maybe sent a message from the Zolio yep. saying to the, the people in question, it's going to come, it's just going to be a while. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there'll be a time when the Zolio can, can let you send files too. For the time being, it's just sending messages, yep. but you get a sense of the direction this technology is going in. But if you had to file an article, say, you could do that. There's no reason that you can't send a thousand there words on the Zolio. You could, you could file a exactly. text piece from anywhere on the planet to anywhere on the planet. That's what it does. Anybody, anywhere can use it anytime. It's magic. And it also has an SOS function so that if you get lost, if your raft is sinking, you hit the SOS button, it goes straight to an emergency response triage centre, I think based in the USA, and they work out where you are and they contact local emergency response authorities and send them to rescue you. So, invaluable, Z-O-L-E-O dot com. Check it out. I was going to make some gag about messaging a bottle and SOS, but I'm glad I didn't from... G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Final Word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Uh, Jeff, you've been looking at the wonderful world of Afghanistan cricket mm. during the week, which we've done from time to time. We say there's politics at Jollymont. Uh, there is also, pol- I was going to say, there's also politics at Kabul. I'm not entirely sure that's where Afghanistan cricket's located, but wherever it's located, they've been busy. Mm. Yeah, being the captain of the Afghanistan team seems a bit like one of those games where you sit up in the chair and then people th- throw a baseball to try to hit the target to drop you in the water. Um, <laughs> so Asghar Afghan, the guy who changed his name to represent his country because he was so proud of being from Afghanistan that he was like, I'm just going to call my... It was like me changing my name to Jeff Australia. <laughs> you know, that, that shows... Maybe you should. Maybe I should. Maybe you should. <laughs> maybe I- <laughs> Don't rule it out. <laughs> Might get a gig on Australian TV if I did that. Well, you're host, hosting a breakfast <laughs> news show. Let's not get carried away. Let's not get carried away. <laughs> yeah, Aussie, Aussie Bob. So, Asghar Afghan's got dunked again. Um, you, you will remember, Adam, he got sacked just before the 2019 World Cup when they mm. brought in Mr. Universe, Gulbadeen Naib, for a spectacular tournament, really, to, to captain that side. Before the World Cup was even over, before the final had been played, they'd already sacked Gulbadeen. They'd appointed Ramat Shah to be the test captain at the same time as they appointed Gulbadeen for one day. So Ramat Shah was the test captain for about two months and then got sacked before captaining a test match uh, because they made Rashid Khan captain across all formats after that World Cup. (laughs) Then they went back to Asghar Afghan, I don't know, six months later or a year later, popped him back in charge of... uh, the test and ODI formats. So against Zimbabwe recently, Afghanistan lost the first test and then won the second, you know, celebrations, hooray. You know, they've won like three out of six of their test matches or something. Incredible, incredible record thus far. Asghar Afghan was part of the match-winning partnership, put on 307, made a big 100 in that second test. And then uh, apparently an investigative committee, so-called, at the Afghanistan Cricket Board investigated the first test and said that they didn't like the fact that they'd lost it and it was all the fault of the captain who'd made mistakes in the field. And so they sacked him after he captained a win in the second test. But no, he didn't win the first one. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, if you're playing a, a, a – I know Zimbabwe's not all that – like hot stuff at the moment, but there's still a you know a, a, a test side to beat. There's still not an easy opposition to push over, so they've got rid of him. They've popped in Hashmatullah Shahidi now to lead in the test matches and ODIs. Ramat Shah, who was previously the test match and didn't get to captain a, a game as test captain, is now the vice captain in those two formats. And Rashid Khan, I believe, is 
still the T20 captain because but he was named on a press release as being the T20 vice captain but there was no T20 captain named so I'm pretty sure they mean that he's actually the T20 captain but anyway all of that has happened in this space of time Big deep breath. We'll keep an eye on that wheel of fortune in Afghanistan cricket. Hopefully, they keep making strides on the field because they're a farce off it. But he, uh, he's got to be in the. He's like Asker still has to be in the team, right? He's made one hundred and sixty odd in their last Test match. He's got to be coming out to Australia. You would you would assume he's coming to Australia, but I mean, look, that's going to be as you say a point of interest as we get towards November at Hobart when they play Australia in a Test match for the first time, and presumably uh, when Australia go to India to play Afghanistan mm. next year per the schedule. I'm sure they'll try and find a way to not do that, but in theory, they'll play two Test matches against Australia in the next twelve months. Right, uh, where there is going to be a Test match is this week at Lords, which is exciting because mm-hmm. the two grandstands have finished well as finished as they're going to be before the test starts on Wednesday the Compton and the Edgerich they look fantastic Jeff I can't tell you how good they look mm. either side of the of the press box there so that will be a part of the uh, theatre I suppose mm. on, on day one some unusual uh, changes to the England squad since we last recorded uh, the main one being that Ben Folks Tories hamstring slipping on a sock in the Surrey dressing room mm. after their game against Middlesex which was galling for him because you think about how long Ben Folks has waited for a chance to keep at home there's always been a, a Bearstow or a Butler in front of him mm. but finally he was the incumbent with the aforementioned pair having been at the IPL thus rested for this New Zealand series and then mm. he goes and tears his hamstring in, in really weird circumstances so that means that James Bracey will play will debut will wicket keep mm-hmm. um, which probably means he'll bat at number seven instead of batting in the top three which we thought Bracey might do mm. if they if they were to pick him to make his debut this summer he, he was probably going to be the spare batsman but yeah. now he gets the chance to wicket keep and, and bat at seven he, Sam Billings was brought in. He's more your sort of long innings player, right? More than your wicket keeping dasher type. I, th- I think that's right. Well, we've seen him play so nicely this year for Gloucestershire. Um, the half century he made against Middlesex a few weeks ago was top class in in, ch- in tough conditions uh, for the visitors. So it makes sense that he, he's been batting number three and keeping mm. at county level too. So he's been kind of covering both bases. And now he gets his chance. Uh, Sam Billings is in as cover for both. So mm-hmm. Billings doesn't keep at the moment for Kent, but obviously mm. he's done it for both his county and his country in white ball cricket. A lot of experience. Been around the squad for, well, I suppose, Six years he made his, well, since he made his um, one day international debut. So, whilst it looks a bit left field in theory, it makes sense that a guy with that much international experience would be brought in if they need someone at the last minute. Yeah, and, and it's it's historical. It's going all the way back to 1868. And uh, Thomas Hearn, was it the guy who was the wicketkeeper because their normal wicketkeeper hadn't shown up? And then the keeper, <laughs> the keeper shows up a couple of hours late and asks to get subbed into the game, and the other team won't yeah. let him. And yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's classic. UK styles and, and our yeah, and our dusty old bastard from a couple of weeks ago who uh, rocked up at the Oval having got a cab from Trent Bridge to wicket keep for England and arriving just in the nick of time as play started so hopefully they won't be in that position tomorrow Hasib Hamid is also in the squad which is pretty exciting mm. because he won't play I mean he is no. you know it, it, he, but the fact that he's there it, I think that's well handled Jeff I think that like if you're going to integrate this guy back into the mainframe sort of with a view to him playing test cricket down the track mm-hmm. It doesn't hurt for him to be in the squad for a couple of test matches. Look, maybe he won't be in the squad when India are here later in the year mm. and the full complement of players are available. But just sort of a fortnight, gets to wear the tracksuit again, gets to feel loved and knows that he isn't yeah. that far away. They're just planting a flag, aren't they? They're, they're, just, yeah, I think they're so. just telling him that uh, it, it's, yeah, it's a pat on the back. You've done well enough thus far to be in the frame that if there were a couple of injuries, you would be next in. So, you know, take that encouragement back to knots and keep doing what he's been doing.
Uh, the Anderson Broad situation is an interesting one because, well, of course, they both want to play seven test matches, don't mm-hmm. they? Um, whether they do or don't, uh, yet to be seen, but they're both out there. In the case of Anderson, he'll join Alistair Cook on 161 test matches, which he's very proud of. He's eight wickets away from 1,000 in first-class mm-hmm. cricket. The last seamer to do that in the UK was Andy Caddick back in uh, 2005. So that's a serious bit of history, right? 1,000 mm-hmm. wickets really means, really does mean something. Yeah, we've seen that Anderson... You know, played. Mm-hmm. I think he played five of the six test matches last summer. Broad missed the first one and played the next five. So how they pull that together is yet to be seen. But I'd be kind of surprised if they don't both play this week. I think they probably will both play the first, you know, because it's it's that pecking order thing. As long as they've played the first one, they're both in the best team and, and then they can rotate and rest from there. But the five India tests are so back-to-back-to-back that I don't think you can play any of your fast bowlers. You know, normally mm. if you have back-to-back tests, so three days between tests, you then have a long break of 10 days or so before the next one. That's not the case in this series. The, ev- mm. Every test is three, four, I think the longest break is five days, four or five. So they're, they're basically having a test every week, which means it's very hard. You can't have a fast bowler play all five of those. So, yeah, that that can't happen, and, and fair enough. Um, I enjoyed the, the photo shoot that went up. So there was the, the photo of Mark Wood that everyone was responding to with his crazy eyebrow. There was the sort of – it was like to have a bit of fun at the end of the shoot thing. Mark Wood's doing that. Don Bess is, like, oh, waving the shirt around. And then there was just James Anderson just – like looking stern as ever, like down the barrel of the camera. <laughs> I'm holding a cricket ball. This is all I think about. I was like, it occurred to me that, like, why why have we never called him Angry Anderson before? Because we should. <laughs> <laughs> Life's tough. So what? I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> That'll mean nothing to our England <laughs> listeners, and that's a good thing. Yeah. One other thing about Stuart Broad is that I suppose War, that War of the Rose tattoo. <laughs> War of the Rose tattoo, exactly. Uh, let's the less we. I mean, this was the thing when I bought the fucking Batmobile. Yeah. I shouldn't swear about the Batmobile. I do love the thing. It was that everyone was like, "Let's get Angry Anderson down. Let's get Angry Anderson involved." And like, Angry Anderson is a full-on lunatic. Yeah. He's like, he's run alongside yeah. Pauline Hanson and all those kind of nut jobs yeah. in the political sphere in recent years. He's he's to be nowhere near he's, the Batmobile. He's, he's a newly energized far right absolute. <laughs> like nutcase so yeah probably yeah. don't get him involved you know he he no he, you don't necessarily want want him to have a megaphone but look you know we we cannot deny the lyrical power of bound for glory we just can't do it no it's a banger so yeah Stuart Broad some interesting analysis around um the fact that like I think the way that he's changed and the way he's been in, mm. interpreted as a, as a bowler in the last two years, well documented the lengths that he bowled in 2009 and, and the preparation he put into the David Warner contest. And again, last year, he was much fuller, a lot of leg before wickets, a lot of bowls. So looking forward to watching him go about it. Also looking forward to watching Ollie Robinson, assuming he debuts. I like that he acknowledged in his pre-test comments that like he's a... Uh, I mean, uh, I was going to use one uh, descriptor there, that he's a, a very um, a very aggressive person on the field. <laughs> I watched him play uh, a game last year at close quarters mm. down at Radlett and, you know, abusing the umpire and sledging batsmen every ball. Like, he's that kind of character. So that might shake up the sensibilities of the, mm. of the MCC members if that guy gets a debut, but he's a very, very good bowler. Six foot six, lands it in a shoebox, moves it both ways. I mean, you, you hate to make comparisons to Glenn McGrath, but that's what he looks like. He, he's very similar 
similar kind of bowler. Maybe Craig Overton gets yep. that final spot, but it feels like Robinson mm. is going to get a debut given um, they yeah. put him up for media a couple of days ago. Neck and neck given their skills in terms of shouting at other players. So, you know, there, there's not much to separate the two of them there. Um, but but well, Robinson's the one with the, with the media push behind him and that wouldn't have happened if, if they hadn't been putting him up. So, yeah, I, I think the, the tea leaves are pretty apparent on that one. And New Zealand haven't got Trent Bolt because, like we were talking about with the Australian players before, having got back from the IPL and gone through all of that drama, he basically said, you know, I can't, I can't get over there and put in and be prepared enough to c- compete properly. So he will be there for the Test Champs final, but he won't be there yep. for the two tests beforehand. Yeah, he went home to see his family and who could begrudge him that after what happened in India. So he'll be here later in the summer. It does mean that Cole Jamison will lead the attack, mm. probably. I mean, alongside with Tim Southey and, and Neil Wagner, but Wagner obviously won't use the new ball. So mm. great attack, brilliantly balanced attack. But Jamison, 36 test wickets at 13 uh, so mm. far in his six matches. It's not as though he's going under the radar or anything like that, but he's only really played through the pandemic. So this will be a great opportunity for him. I spoke to him last week. He's only spent four days in the UK before this trip. Mm. Never bowled here. Never used a Duke's ball with the exception of some training. So that'll be very exciting to watch him, presumably from uh, the pavilion end with the slope there. BJ Watling's announced that this will be his final uh, series, uh, 35 years of age, nearly 4,000 mm. test runs at 38. Eight centuries, of course, he was uh, part of that record 352-run stand with Brendan mm-hmm. McCullum against uh, India in 2014, which was the highest for, for the sixth wicket in test cricket. He's been a wonderful contributor yep. over a long stretch of time, and, and they arrive as the number one ranked team, and they get the chance in the World Test Championship. I mean, what a great way to go at it would be for him. Oh, absolutely. Um, the... One of the best players ever named after a sex act, BJ Watling. It's probably <laughs> certainly since Cameron Bangers Bancroft played his final Test match. But uh, he's he's just he's a player who's always been undersold because he's not super exciting or dramatic to look at. But he's uh, he's the guy who comes in in really difficult situations and and does something absolutely bloody minded uh, and you know bats for two days or whatever it might be and he's done that enough times that it's definitely no fluke so here's hoping I'd, I'd have to say my heart is probably with um New Zealand getting something out of Lords this time around <laughs> at least to make up for what happened in 2019 yeah, or indeed 2015 when they played a wonderful test mm. at Lords. It was a very high-scoring affair, but didn't quite get over the line uh, due to Ben Stokes. So that's going to be brilliant. As I say, New Zealand come in ranked number one. I don't think they're thrilled that the full complement of England players aren't available. Mm. I was asked this on, a, on another podcast during the week. Would What I thought of that, my response was that I don't think they'd be resting players if it were mm. Australia or India, and yet they're willing to do it against yeah. the number one team in the world, irrespective of the IPL. So I'm not, I'm not diminishing mm. the importance of rest, by the way. It's more just where, subliminally, where New Zealand sit in the pecking order. But there was, st- um, there was still that weirdness with Chris Silverwood talking about India, saying, oh, playing India will be great preparation for the Ashes. Like It, oh, it is yeah, well, so yeah, weird yeah, to me, sure. playing the, be- the number one and two ranked sides in the world, New Zealand and India, that'll be great preparation for the Ashes. Like... Yeah. Everything is preparation for the Ashes. Every single match you ever play. 
yeah, I think Silverwood would want those comments back because they jarred uh, mm. and, and it didn't feel right, did it, that India and New Zealand are out here yet. Um, it's all seemingly mm. about the Ashes. And, and in a way, that's a lot of the dialogue already about the county championship, which we'll move into now, mm. has been around players who might be able to get on the plane to Australia later in the year. Leicestershire, I'll start though with an unfashionable county. Leicestershire mm. chased down 378 on the final day against Middlesex mm. at home. Thanks to Marcus Harris, Victorian Marcus Harris, 185, batting in the fourth inning. Fair effort that Colin Ackerman 126 not out They got there easily in the end They won by five wickets It confirms that Middlesex won't make The, the first or second division Under Peter Hanscom mm. He made a couple of starts this week A 20 odd and a 30 odd But uh, it's been a real struggle for Hanscom With the exception of the 70 He made it the Oval last week at the Oval, Jeff, uh, you'll you'll hate to learn that the Freaks got beaten up pretty bad. Uh, Gloucestershire had their first real on, bad performance of the season. Channel the spirit um, of WG Grace. <laughs> Cheat until you win. That's it. Eddie Guerrero, cheat to win. Uh, WCW fans out there. Yeah, Surrey made... 473. Amla, uh, 173. So his second big century mm-hmm. of the season. They lost by an innings. How's this though? Dan Moriarty, who played a couple of games in the Bob Willis Trophy yeah. last year, slow left arm spinner, mm. hasn't played this year. Mm-hmm. He's taken four, five wicket hauls in his first five innings in first class cricket, Ooh. which is pretty handy. So given the pitches will get presumably flatter and harder through yeah. the second half of the year, he might get a bit more of an opportunity. Uh, how, how good would it be if we could time travel players and Dan Moriarty could bowl to Percy Holmes? You know, you could oh, yeah. <laughs> We should play that game on Storytime, actually. <laughs> Literary figures to whom. Uh, speaking of Aussies battling, uh, Travis Head, naught and one for Sussex Ow. in their loss to Northants. I don't think Travis Head's made it to double figures yet, so um, that's not going well for him mm. down at Hove. We talked briefly about Hasee Pameed before. He, made, he was able to play this county round, even mm-hmm. though he's been called up, that they... Gave him permission to play for knots. He made 39 and 2, but they lost after winning three on the trots. They've, they've given away top spot um, to Essex. It's a bit of a log jam there. So Essex on 107, knots on 102, and Warwickshire on 100. And in a competition where you get a lot of points swirling around in each mm. in each game, that, that means that they're, they're, they're essentially even uh, with a couple of rounds to go. Essex thumps Durham. Peter Siddle, six more wickets, Jeff. So two big games in a row mm. for Sids. He's back in town. And last but not least, the game I was doing uh, for Sky Cricket at Manchester, the Roses game, won for the ages. You look at the scorecard and you see that Lanks won by an innings, but they got there with 20 minutes to spare. One of those crazy sort of final days, men around the bat. It's the first time that, that Lanks have won at Old Trafford against Yorkshire since mm. 2000 and their thousandth win in championship cricket as well. So a bit of history for the club. But yeah, that final day was Saqib Mahmood reverse swinging it. Jeff, watch out for Saqib. Mm. He bowls 90 mile an hour. And reverses it. So, you know, mm. watch this space there. I reckon he'll come to Australia in the extended squad. Yeah. And I'll just have him in their back pocket if, if, it, if it, you know, that, that's a, a very handy player mm-hmm. to have in reserve. Likewise, Matt Parkinson, who was in the bubble in Sri Lanka and India for like four months, didn't play a single game. He bowled beautifully into the rough on the final day. I don't know. Finger spinners don't do too well in Australia, do mm. they? If you're not Nathan Lyon, finger spinners tend to struggle. There'll be a temptation and a worthy one to play Parkinson in Brisbane, uh, I would say, later in the year. But I suppose if they're going to do that, they'll, they'll probably want to get some test cricket into him 
uh, between now and then. One other nice moment with Josh Bohannon, who made his second first-class century. I was on comms at the time, but I had Texture Maxi, who was following it very, very closely, because he's um, been mentoring Bohannon when they played at Lanks together right. a couple of years ago. They're close mates, but yeah, he was riding it all the way from Hotel Quarantine, <laughs> watching every every moment of that. So uh, good to see the young man uh, play a, a chanceless innings, made about 120-odd mm. not out. And just, just quietly, you were doing that game on the telly, and you were probably enjoying yourself, weren't you? It was good. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. A wonderful week. I've never done a Roses game. Uh, so, uh, yeah, doing a Roses game and getting to work with, uh, yeah, with those brilliant broadcasters at Sky, it's always a privilege. So, yeah, that's been a lovely thing to do in the last month or so. And that's probably enough from the county championship for now. There's one more round uh, in this block this week, and then they uh, move to the T20 uh, blast and the... 100 and all the rest and we get another round a couple of rounds in, in mid-July Jeff before we sign off today uh, we received some good news this morning uh, via Tim Wigmore's reporting in the Telegraph over here that the World Cup in 2027 that's the men's 50 over World Cup I should say uh, looks as though it's going to be played exactly as we hoped with the format that we were talking about around 14 teams mm-hmm. a couple of months ago when Wiggy first broke the story that they were looking to expand it again. Mm-hmm. It looks as though they're going back to the 2003 model after a consultation where they looked at 2015, 2019, mm-hmm. and they've looked at this and said, this is the best model. That's exactly what we were saying. Well, the other thing that it means is that Kenya is heading to the semi-finals. Come on, Kenya. <laughs> Finally. Can you dig it? <laughs> um, yes, you can. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the um, yeah, I mean, this is the, the, the this will not satisfy everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will be there will be uh, members of our cricket community who I respect an awful lot who want to see sixteen teams or twenty teams or fifty teams. I, I just want to sort of that's a different mm-hmm. conversation, a different debate. This is about, for my part anyway, how do you get the best possible tournament mm-hmm. from two groups of seven, uh, which means there's competitive tension early on because you need to get into the top three rather than the top four, mm-hmm. which also means that the, the lower seeds still get a minimum of six games. Mm-hmm. So teams, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, very unlikely to progress unless something very unlikely were to happen. They still get to play six games of yep. World Cup cricket, which I think is really important. So it's not absolutely perfect, but what format is. Mm. Uh, and uh, But at least that gives that ticks a lot of boxes, I think. Yeah. And the carryover points that were improved from 99 to 2003, which should mean that when, say, Australia play India in the group stage, it matters then, but it also matters down the track mm. as well. You can't afford to sort of take games lightly. There is no dead rubber, as South mm. Africa found out the very hard way in 1999. Right. And, and the only thing that could make you happier is if it somehow incorporates incorporated a, a McIntyre final five you know that's that's what would really put Adam Collins over the edge that's but, the yeah, but, instead of the instead of the super six we go to the McIntyre final five for, I don't know how we'd pull off the seedings there but yeah okay that's an option as well but but you it feels like you wrote this it feels like somehow you know the ICC said Adam can you just work out something for the 2027 World Cup and you're like absolutely I have a plan in mind I've written 3,000 words for the night watchman about it here it is no the yeah it, it, it is good I I didn't think it would play out this way. I thought they would um, look at a model which incorporated something along the lines of what we've seen in the uh, the, um, IPL in recent seasons. But, yeah, I'm glad this is the way. Again, there'll be critics of this. Mm -hmm. There always will be. Uh, That's the nature of these conversations. There'll be perfectionists out there. There'll be, uh, Mm. you know, but this isn't about that. It feels pretty good. It feels like with a a situation like this, you get your Zimbabwe and Bangladesh in there without the, the risk of them being squeezed out as they've been at risk at before. I mean, Sri Lanka's not 
going too hot on the one-day rankings at the moment yeah. um, for that matter. You get your sort of next level in in terms of Afghanistan and Ireland and you still have a couple of spots for up-and-comers from down the leagues. You know, there's there's enough breadth there. And the, the one point that always gets misrepresented is that if you have lower-ranked teams, you're going to have mismatches, you're going to have blowout games. Statistically, I mean, I've looked at this in granular detail at times you you're no more likely to get blowouts uh, than you do between top teams like top teams beat mm, each other by mm. massive margins all the time and sometimes they don't you know and and games with lower ranked teams they also have to play lower ranked teams so there are still close contests between uh, those sort of sides and then there are close contests between lower ranked teams and high ranked teams like we saw in the last world cup with afghanistan very nearly beating pakistan nearly beating india nearly beating bangladesh they were very close in all of those games so the close matches do happen the upsets can happen there's the opportunity for that to happen and there's absolutely mm. no statistical support for the idea that the disparity in rankings actually makes for larger margins than even having close ranked teams play each other yeah i agree with all of that and the other point here is that with 14 teams you're guaranteeing six games the 2007 mm. format with four groups of four that guaranteed three games. Mm. So that was a problem on two fronts. One is that the associate nations who were playing didn't get that same mm. level of, you know, three and out. You know, you have one game rained off. That means, you know, at least with six games, well, it's twice as many yep. by definition. And look, rain's always a factor mm. with cricket. You could end up um, getting a rough rough end of that if you're, if you're a big nation as well. Mm. We've seen that in, in tournaments over the years. So that's one part of it. And the other shortcoming of 2007, of course, was that you could get bundled out in three games if you're, if you're a big nation as well, which had commercial... Uh, commercial implications and we can't like sort of divorce ourselves from the reality of which we live in we can't pretend that India getting uh, sent home after three games didn't um, didn't pose a, a significant problem in this scenario India are guaranteed six games mm-hmm. and in all probability so long as they make the top six or the top three in their group they go on to play three games in the super six which is nine and then there's mm-hmm. the global overall figure the 2019 World Cup had 49 games I think this means 54 so we're not talking about mm-hmm you know, shitload more games to facilitate an, an in-between yep. step, nor are we saying that we need to reduce it back to sort of 40 games, which yep. the, the uh, which the, you know, the, the rights holders would never agree to. So it seems to tick that box as well that there'll be a few more games. It might mean, per Wigmore's article, that there will be more doubleheaders. Okay, is that a problem? I don't think so. I, I never thought that the doubleheaders in 2019 or 2015, for that matter, pose the massive issue where you know especially when you can you can structure it with mm. a day game and a day night game or something like that that felt, that felt pretty okay so it shouldn't mean that the length of the competition is extended which was a problem back in 2007 as well or at least a perceived problem so yeah, yeah that, that it, i think it's overall it's, it's a really positive outcome and hopefully that's where they land when they make the decision later i in mean the year. doubleheaders should be able to work with one game being a day game and the other being a day nighter and you know, make sure that yeah, you have yeah. you have four hours of breathing space between the start of one and the start of the other. But that should work, uh, and and it means you've got less opportunity for the one game that day to be a dud um, because you've got two <laughs> two possibilities of of there being a, a better game. You know, and and if it does go a bit longer, that just means more final word daily shows for you and me. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we would have like been hospitalised had there been four more days of matches in twenty nineteen. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was 46 days, I know, because, Jeff, you kindly posted the video uh, that we recorded at the front of Lords when uh, the World Cup was mm. decided in 2019, when we're both, like, 
hysterical, really, mm. uh, with the whole uh, the whole thing. But yep. yeah, I don't expect that it would mean it would last any longer. Just that they would crunch a few more games in, five more double headers. No concerns there, uh, Jeff. On that good note, uh, or that positive mm-hmm. note, uh, let's wind up the show for today. Yep. Uh, thank you to Dan Bredig for coming on and filling us in on all matters CA. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you to Zolio for being with us uh, and being a fine supporter of The Final Word for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Likewise, our patrons, we've passed 614 uh, comfortably in the last few days, although it being the 1st of June, we might now drop below 614 again. That is entirely possible, but maybe we'll have the buffer. Maybe we won't. We'll find out in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Update your credit cards. Uh, I, if, if your credit card's expired this month. If your credit card's expired... Yeah, update it. You get a prompt from Patreon when that does happen, but mm. if it falls, falls between the cracks, you'll get an email from Jeff or I saying, hey, you know your credit card's expired. You can update it here, <laughs> something like that. As we mentioned at the start of the show, if you want to associate with uh, Jeff and me and the final word uh, through the next year or, or beyond, uh, drop us an email at finalwordcricket at gmail.com or find us on social media. The one thing we missed off the top is that we're fairly consistently one of the most downloaded cricket podcasts in the world, and that's reflected in, in the iTunes charts. So you're getting, uh, you, you'd be getting the chance to work with a show that's uh, going to be making more and more and listened to hopefully by more and more people mm-hmm. in the future. Thank you to Bad Producer Productions for getting us on the park twice a week with the weekly show and then story time. That's coming up on Saturday. DC, you're an absolute gem. Likewise, Astrid and Jay. Jeff, thank you for all your work and for your company down the Zoom screen. Uh, thank you to everybody who's listened and liked and reviewed and all the rest of it. We'll do it all again on story time on the weekend. Bye for now. Blue heaven.